0: Turn to Acts chapter 8, in your bulletin is sermon notes. If you heard me last Sunday morning, I say to you, it's kind of a synopsis of the sermon so that you can take it with you and follow along as well as work through some of the things that I'm sharing this morning. This morning's sermon is incredibly vital in your journey with God, and I want to be really clear on its layout, and uh, a, lot of that quite, a lot of that is in there this morning, and so I want you to walk together with it, not only here, but obviously throughout your week as you begin to unpack the things that God wants to teach you in a one-half-hour setting, knowing that you're trying to absorb a lot of material. Last Sunday morning, we started Acts chapter 8. What you found in that was that what Jesus told them to do in Acts 1-8, take this gospel, the thing that has changed your life forever, everywhere you go. I want you to start in Jerusalem, but I eventually want you to take it to Judea and Samaria, and ultimately to the ends of the earth. The CNMA, the Christian Missionary Alliance that you and I are part of, has been doing that over 125 years. Hundreds and thousands of people have been touched down through the ages because we obey Jesus in Acts 1-8, and we have taken that gospel to the ends of the earth. The CNMA today is in 81 countries around the world, taking the gospel of Jesus that changes lives forever, everywhere we go. They stayed where they were for a long period of time. Until in Acts chapter 8, persecution began to actually push them out into the very places that Jesus told them to go. And you see it unfolding in those first few verses of Acts 8 as they now take the gospel into Judea and Samaria. The thing that stood out to me in that section of scripture last Sunday morning was their response to all of that difficulty. Their response to Stephen's death, their response to the persecution, their response to Paul going out and taking them and putting them in jail and destroying some of the churches. I couldn't get over every time I read that section of Scripture, their response to that. They continued to spread the good news everywhere they went. And in the middle of all of that difficulty and all of that pain and all of that uncertainty, they continued to keep their eyes on Jesus. Jesus. You know as well as I do, the note that I have there for you in your sermon notes, is that most often our character best develops when we go through difficulty and come out the other side as opposed to when things go well. Now, if we had a choice, we'd want it to go the other way, Right? If indeed we had the opportunity to negotiate with Jesus, we would say, look, I promise you I'll be faithful. I'll love you. I'll serve you. I'll follow you. I'll read your word. I'll go to Bible studies. I'll go to church. I'll sing the song. I'll have a great time following you, God. Just let everything go really well. I know you grow best through difficulty and pain, but I'm, I'm not really up for that. And so if we could do it another way, it'd be awesome. But James very clearly tells us, look, don't run from difficulty. You don't always run to it, but don't run from it, and don't ignore it. Let it do its work, because so often in the midst of all of that pain and difficulty, you grow deeper with God, and you know and I know that we've seen people all the way down through the ages that when they go through difficulty, really are defined and refined, and come out of that incredible. They're wonderful people to be around. You also know people, the longer they're in that difficulty, the nastier they get. You can either be bitter or better as a result of the difficulty that we face. It is a choice. Clearly understand that. It is a choice as to how we respond to the difficulty that goes on around us. And you clearly see that in them. In Acts 8, in the middle of all of that unbelievable difficulty, they continue to share the good news of Jesus everywhere they go. Now this morning we're going to move from Stephen, who died at the end of chapter 7 and 8, into Philip who was one of those that were scattered, one of those chosen by God in Acts chapter 6 to share ministry, now a part of that scattering goes down in Samaria and not only uses his gifts just to minister to people, you see him being saturated by the Spirit of God and God using him in some really incredible ways. I want you to be with me in Acts chapter 8 this morning. I'll begin at verse 4, read to 25, and we'll unpack a lot of as we go along. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to the city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. When the crowds heard Philip and they saw the signs he performed, they all paid very close attention to what he said. For with shrieks and pure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in the city. Now for some time a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great, and all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, This man is rightly called the great power of God. They followed him because he amazed them for a long time with the sorcery. But when they believed Philip as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptized, and he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and the miracles that he saw. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. When they arrived, they prayed for the new believers that were there that they might receive the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. They simply had been baptized in the name of Jesus, similar to John the Baptist's baptism. When Peter and John placed their hands on them, they received the Holy Spirit. When Simon saw the spirit was given by the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered the money and said, Wow, give me this ability so that everyone I lay my hands on will receive the Holy Spirit. Peter looked straight at him and answered, May your money perish with you. Because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord in the hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you're still full of bitterness and captive to sin. And Simon answered, pray the Lord for me so that nothing you have said may happen to me. After they further proclaimed the word of God and testified about Jesus, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages. Father, your word is powerful. It's honest. It opens us up and lets us see who we are. Lets us see some changes we may need to make and let's evaluate our lives based on what we see. So as we unpack this this morning, Spirit of the living God, would you have free reign here? We bind any force of darkness who would want to confuse or distort your word. And let us clearly hear what the Spirit has to say to us, your people and the church. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. number of characters that you obviously see in this particular section of Scripture, the first one that stands out, obviously, is Simon. The Scripture said he's one who practiced Sorcery. King James version uses the word amaze and King James uses the word bewitched. It says he practiced magic, deals with the astrology and the power of the occult. What you need to understand is more than just razzle dazzle, more than just magic. Nothing wrong with magic. Nothing wrong with illusion. I know there are a lot of people that do that and wonder where it comes from, where the power comes from. I'm not saying that at all, so I don't want you to get misconstrued because I know people, godly men and women, who use magic or illusion to help get their attention across. I'm not saying anything about that at all. In this particular man's case, his power is not just simply his ability to share an illusion or magic tricks. His power is coming from the occult, from the enemy. His power is enormous. And the power referred to is not from God. They assume he's a messenger from God. They wonder where it comes from. But I want you to be really clear and want you to understand that his power is from the occult. Teachings many would know today is new age. He claimed to be a divine mediator between God and man, but it's not that at all. When we get to Acts 19, we're not going to deal with it today. I'm going to spend at least one whole week, if not two, talking about this very issue. You're going to see it unfolding in Acts chapter 19 in ways that will probably intrigue you, maybe have you questioning what it's all about, but a clear understanding that you and I are facing an enemy every day of our lives who's alive and visible and living on planet Earth. You talk to almost any missionary around the world about the occult and about what they see in the power of God as opposed to the power of the enemy, and they see it every single day of their lives. Talk to most North American Christians, they don't see it that often and wonder if it exists. Exactly what you see here, and especially what we'll see then, goes on all around the globe still today. Until that moment when Satan is finally defeated and put under complete control of the God of the universe. Until then, he has free reign, uses a lot of people to get his message across. Mediums and some of those ones who see the future, I'm telling you, they are seeing the future. And they do sometimes see what's going to take place. But where they're receiving their information from is what you need to be really clear on. It is not from God. And Simon is one of those who are seeing this take place. Now, you've got an interesting dynamic going on here in Samaria. These people were known to embrace every kind of teaching you can imagine. You've got Simon who performs magic and Philip performing signs and wonders. And they embrace it all be like taking in a little Christianity, some Buddhism, some Confucius teaching, and some New Age. The spirit of the age in Samaria would be open-minded to everything. God is everywhere and in everything, they would say. Really New Age thinking. You've got to realize what Philip is dealing with. He just came from Jerusalem, where they were stiff-necked, hard-hearted, and resisted the gospel, comes to Samaria, and they embrace it all. you got to believe this guy's pretty jazzed up about what's taking place. The problem is he just landed in Southern California, where they believe every. No, I'm just kidding. I said in the first service, I I won't say it in this service, but I said in the first service, you know what happened in California? Somewhere in the late 60s, the whole nation got tilted on its end, and everything loose went to California. I said that in the first. I'm not going to do it in this one. And then somebody came to me in the first service and said, I am from Southern California, thank you very much. So I didn't want to say it in this service at all. In Jerusalem, they were threatened by the power of God and tried to destroy it in Samaria. They embraced everything. One minute they're following Simon. Verse 11, another minute following Peter and Philip. Even Simon in verse 13, and it's clear that you understand what happens and when it happens, even Simon in verse 13 believes and is baptized. And now Philip's got a genuine celebrity in his congregation. But the problem wasn't his celebrity status. The problem was his belief system that Peter clearly points out. Nothing wrong with Philip's message. He preaches Christ and the good news of the kingdom. Nothing wrong with his ministry, signs and wonders, healing, miraculous, born of the Spirit of God. But sometimes, even in the middle of right teachings and right doctrine, false faith can develop. Or at least a faith that doesn't take root. Jesus used a lot of parables and a lot of analogies, and sometimes at the end of some of those, he would explain exactly what he meant so everyone was clear. On one occasion in Matthew 13, he talked about seed being planted and spread out by a, like a, by a farmer. He talked about the fact that some of the seed goes on rocky ground and it just stays there for a while and and and, and doesn't take a lot of root, and then sometimes the The weeds and the snares and all those things come in and kind of choke it out and it dies. Talked about the birds coming along and taking some of the seed and finishes the analogy by talking about some of the seed that really does take root. Stays, grows deep, really is attractive, and it continues to produce. Similar to Bill and Donna, who all of their lives have produced fruit and it continues to remain. Disciples said, we don't get it. (laughs) What's the deal with the seed and the sower and the farmer? He said, all right, let me explain it to you. The seed is the word of God. I want to be really clear on this. There are a lot of people that receive the seed and say, that's good, man, great, I love Jesus, yep. Get out of hell for a free card? Yep, I'll take one. (laughs) Where do I sign? Anybody here want to go to heaven? Say, I do. I do. Okay, I'll sign up. That's a good deal. Then all of a sudden, a lot of things come into their life, a lot of pressures of life, the demands of life, the demands of Christ, the demands of Christianity. What it entails is daily walk with God, submitting myself to him, dying to myself every day of my life. Oh, okay, that's what it means. I I didn't sign up for that. And Walk away. The other people that are with it for a while, and then a lot of things come pulling at them, and, and all of a sudden that passion that they had in that moment when they signed the card or raised their hand or said the words just isn't there anymore, and it's really not what it's supposed to be, and eventually that seed chokes out and dies. Jesus said it happens a lot. Simon is one of those. He's a classic example in your notes this morning the difference between a decision for Christ and genuine conversion, genuine transformation could be equated to someone who believed that Jesus and God exists. They raised their hand at a church meeting or signed a card at a crusade, but never really turned their life around, never really became a disciple of Jesus. Many refer to that as foxhole conversions. You ever heard one of those stories? God, if you get me out of this mess, I promise I'll go to church. God, if you somehow get me through this problem, I promise you I'll follow you. I'll follow you the end of the year. Just get me out of this mess right now. And so God does and gets them out of the mess. And they forget the commitment that they've ever made. A lot of people see Jesus as fire insurance. The difference is heaven or hell. And with Jesus, I get heaven and I don't have to go to hell. Sign me up for that one. I'll take that one. They never really decided to live for Christ at all and never followed him after that at all. And to be really honest with you, and as blunt as I know how, I'm not really sure if your fire insurance policy is still in effect. If the only reason you accepted Christ, raised your hand or signed a card, was because someone said to you, if you accept Jesus, you go to heaven. If you don't, you go to hell. You said yes to that, and that's all you've ever done in your relationship with God. I want to be as honest as I know how. I'm not sure if your fire insurance policy is still in effect. And if there's one thing you want to be sure about, I'd want to be sure about that one. Because you don't want to wait till the house burns down and is destroyed to find out you didn't have what you thought you had. Peter confronts him pretty noticeably. In verse 20, Simon, may your money perish with you. You thought you could buy the gift of God. You have no part because your heart's not right before God. Repent repent of this wickedness and pray in the Lord that you might have hope for all the stuff that is still inside and the fact that you're captivated by sin. It's interesting when you look at this section of Scripture that when Peter and John were sent down, they prayed that they would receive the Holy Spirit. Now, again, I'm preaching one sermon in 30 minutes. There's so much in Scripture that you need to explore. i have given you two sections of Scripture in Romans that you really need to put in context of this. Paul said, look, when you really do invite Christ into your life and you make a decision to follow Him, the Spirit of God is going to so saturate your life that you're going to know in your spirit that you're a child of the living God. His spirit and your spirit are going to connect. His spirit and your spirit are going to testify to one another. I know I'm a child of God. The living spirit of God inside of me is committed to that service for him, that desire to know him, that desire to grow in him. Am I perfect? Absolutely not. Do I still have room to grow? You better believe it. But I know in my spirit there's something about that relationship between me and Christ where I'm no longer what I used to be. I'm moving in this relationship with Jesus, and his spirit testifies to that so that you know beyond the shadow of a doubt that you're on this journey with God. And you're growing in that relationship. And that's what Paul talks about in in Romans. When Christ in the Spirit takes control of your life, there's a noticeable difference. All the rest of the New Testament points that out. Jesus said, you will know that you're my child. And you'll know which ones are my children. John later points out, you'll know them by their love for each other. Interesting sidebar to this particular section of Scripture. Of all things, when they send Peter and John down to Samaria, the last time you see Peter and John going to Samaria is in Luke chapter 9 when they resisted the gospel and Peter and John said to Jesus, hey, this would be cool, call down fire from heaven and destroy them all. Great idea, just get rid of them. And now, all of a sudden, the very two that the Spirit of God sends to Samaria is Peter and John, who now, instead of wanting them to perish, want them to find all the fullness of Christ in their lives. To understand the text better, you need to understand the Greek. And and I know you don't. I don't either, to be honest with you. So I obviously have to pull it together based on what I understand in commentaries in the Word of God. In verse 14, it said they accepted the Word of God. In verse 15, received the Holy Spirit... Verse 17, received the Holy Spirit. Same word, right? Matter of fact, in King James uses received all three times. But in the Greek, the 1 in 14 accepted is a Greek word that means to understand or to find pleasing. In other words, they liked what Philip was preaching. Good sermon. Good communicator. Good stuff. I like that. In verse 15, they use the word received which is another greek word that means to seize or to embrace to take for oneself literally to take captive what was happening in their lives as they went through this transition is that not only that it sounded good i like that good preacher good communicator that's what i want that's what i need that's what i want to embrace It's not just a matter of hearing it, knowing it's okay. It's a matter of pulling it in, taking it in, and allowing it to so saturate your life that it becomes an opportunity to consume you until every day of your life you're growing deeper and deeper in love with God. Now, in the CNMA, we talk about sanctification, which is set apart, deepening your walk with God, growing more and more in love with Jesus. We talk about two aspects of that, crisis and progressive sanctification. Crisis is came to faith in Christ, I'm trying to live this Christian life and I realize I can't do this on my own power and Jesus said, good. I didn't think you could. But I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll send you my spirit and he will so empower you and so live in you that you'll have the power that you couldn't have on your own and don't have on your own to live the life I've called you to. Progressive sanctification is from that crisis point on. Now a lot of people do do that at salvation. We can debate till Jesus comes back about where it takes place and when it takes place. For some people, it does all take place at that moment when I fully surrender myself to Christ. But for some, it happened at an earlier age when I committed myself to Jesus, and all of a sudden, I realized I'm I'm not living for him at all. And I come to this place of full surrender, where every single day of my life, I wake up and I say, Jesus, I'm not what I used to be. I'm so thankful for that. I'm not what I need to be. I surrender myself to you today. I die to myself, and I invite you to live your life through me. You've already invited him in, but I now invite you to live your life through me. In my last church, there were four guys, there were there high school guys, who all loved camping together on the weekends. And a number of weekends, they invited the old man, me. I have no idea why. <laughs> he said, Rev, got to come along with us. So I, I went along to a couple of events with him, and we had some great conversations. One of them was near the end of August, and one of them, and I won't tell his name, you'd know him anyhow, said to me, well, Rev, I'm going to camp this weekend to get saved again. I said, what? <laughs> he said, I'm going to camp this weekend to get saved again. I said, what do you mean get saved again? Well, you know how at the end of a Bible camp, everybody gets saved again every single year. We sit around a campfire and tell stories and talk about God and ask if we want to accept Jesus. And so we say, yes, we did it last year. We did it the year before. We'll probably do it again this year, and I know I'll do it next year. I said, oh, Nick, I've got I to gotta back you up here for a minute. You would get saved again and again and again and again, and I began to explain to him some of the things that are taking place here in this section of Scripture. Twenty-some 20 years later, I get an email from him. I get it. I get it. Full-out, flat-out surrender to the living Christ. And from that point on, and living his life for Jesus. Had he accepted Christ somewhere along the way? Absolutely. I'm going to deny that. I'm not going to shake you up over that. But it was just simply a mindless commitment. Anybody here want to go to heaven? Say, I do. I do. But no real saturation of the Spirit of God to live that life that God is calling him to and couldn't figure out why he was never successful in his Christian journey. Simon is one of those. A lot of people like that. And that's what Philip and Jesus... (coughs) Peter and John, I'm sorry, are trying to clarify. There are a lot of people who follow Christ. He was a great teacher. They loved his healings. They loved the miraculous taking place. But when he said, if you want to follow me and really embrace my teaching, it's going to cost you everything. You've got to die to yourself every day of your life, and you've got to let me live my life, the power of my spirit, through you to the end of time. And a lot of people said, I don't know if I want to do that. Like all the other stuff he offered, but I'm not sure if I want to do that. Here in Acts chapter 8, verse 17, once they understood, once they really understood what was taking place, said they received or embraced the power of the living God. They went beyond understanding to commitment. Simon didn't. Simon sought the power in your sermon notes, but not the source of the power. He pursued the gifts, but not the giver. He wanted the assurance without paying the price, and that's a hugely powerful statement. He didn't want transformation. He wanted, as a matter of fact, recognition. Jesus and Paul's teaching said, no, it doesn't happen like that. It happens through brokenness, a hunger for righteousness, and a passionate pursuit of the living Christ. Simon serves as an incredible contrast to people that we met last Sunday morning who shared Jesus everywhere they went, when things were good and when things were bad. Simon wanted the power so he could be seen. Peter said it doesn't happen like that. Simon wanted to add Jesus to all the other things that give life, like a lot of people today who want just enough of Jesus to keep them safe, just enough of Christianity to get by, and add him to the mix of the other things in life that give them life, their money and their career and their reputation, hobbies and status. Peter said, you've got to repent of that thinking. Jesus is the only source of life. In your notes, you don't add Jesus to your life. Jesus is the life, period. Everything else, he said, comes after that. Peter's essentially saying what James is going to say later in book of James, chapter 2. Look, it's not what you say with your mouth. It's not the fact that you've been baptized and joined a church. Your heart's not right with God. Is it possible to sit in the context of right preaching every Sunday? To be around Christians, to know and hear the truth, and still have a heart that's not right with God? It is. Maybe nobody here this morning, but I... Got to believe that you know a lot of other people who do say they love Jesus or at least go to church and believe that God exists, but their life doesn't show any evidence of the living Christ living his life in and through them. And maybe it's you. What we end up doing so often, last Sunday morning we we were in communion, and there's a passage of Scripture that, says near the end of that, and I, I don't always use it, but in 1 Corinthians 13, as Paul begins to set up the communion experience, he said, you, you have to examine your heart. What we normally examine is our performance. I didn't do real well this week, but I sure did better than them, and they go to church. Or I really messed up this week, and maybe I'm not committed at all. Do not measure performance or examine performance. Measure your heart. Look deep inside. Because I'm telling you, as sure as I'm standing here, exactly what Paul said would take place. His spirit and your spirit will identify the fact that you're a child of the living God. They'll be a witness to one another. And they'll say, yes. Am I where I need to be? No. Am I perfect? No. No. But am I a child of the living God? Absolutely. There are a lot of people that want to play both worlds. They like church. They love the music. They love singing. They love their relationships. They love the fun that goes with that and the other things that come along with it. But come Monday, there's no difference in their life at all, and they really don't want all that it brings and all that it offers. They just want enough of Jesus to get by, to keep them safe, to hopefully get to heaven and sneak by but they know and other people may know that there's really no difference in their life. And I love you enough to say you can't play that game. You can't play church on Sunday and do your own thing on Monday through Friday or Saturday. And you can't be in both worlds. You have to decide. And to be honest with you, it's one of the most critical decisions you'll ever make in life because your eternal destination depends on that decision. Sitting in church, singing the songs, put money in the offering plate, wonderful things. But that doesn't save you. That doesn't secure your relationship with the living Christ. And It's not just a matter of saying that you raised your hand somewhere along the way or signed a card or said some words. It's that you've opened yourself up to the living God to let him live through you and be in you and walk with you and saturate you Every day of your life. Will you be perfect? No. But will you go in that direction and be moving the right path? Absolutely. And you'll know it because you didn't examine your performance. You examined your heart. Though just for a few minutes, would you do that this morning? Father, your word is so clear. I'm always amazed that when I read sections of Scripture like this that were played out so long ago, they could have been played out last Sunday could have been played out with a friend of ours who we know goes to church, but no real difference in their life at all. And so when we read a section of Scripture like this, it reminds us of maybe someone else and maybe for a few here this morning, their own journey, who really love certain aspects of Christianity but aren't fully surrendered or fully committed. They're kind of hoping they can be in both worlds. So Father, by the Spirit of the living God, Would you speak to them this morning? fully surrendered Lord I would be I don't want to play the game anymore I want to try to be in both worlds And so Lord for those this morning who honestly are aware of that and would like to make the difference stick or see the change take place would you give them the courage to follow through not just know it in their head but respond and do what's necessary to make the change